Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we travel to the Fraunhofer Center for Applied Photonics in Glasgow and learn about some of the exciting research that's being done there. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by GNBKL Group, a world-class manufacturer of vacuum hardware, including chambers, valves, and components. Make sure you watch their online game show, Will It Bloat?, where they place everyday objects, such as a hot dog, a chocolate Easter bunny, and even an air cylinder into a vacuum chamber to see if they bloat. You can watch America's favorite vacuum show at www.vacuumchamber.com. In this podcast, we'll be hearing from a trio of scientists who are involved in different projects at the Fraunhofer Center for Applied Photonics in Glasgow, UK. But first, some background from my colleague, Margaret Harris. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hamish. Now, some of our listeners might be surprised to hear that there's a Fraunhofer Center in Glasgow. Isn't Fraunhofer a German organization? Yes, it is. And there's 76 different Fraunhofer institutions spread across Germany, each of them focusing on a different area of applied science. There's also a handful of Fraunhofer's in other countries as well, including the U.S., Singapore, and the U.K. So, Margaret, you say that Fraunhofer's focus is on applied science. What does that mean in practice? Well, the idea, as I understand it, is to bridge this gap that exists between basic research, like you get at universities, and commercial R&D that's really focused on developing a product you can sell to a customer. And this gap is sometimes pretty big, which is why various organizations exist to try to overcome it. And a key part of the way Fraunhofer works is that although it gets some funding from the government, just like universities do, uh, the lion's share comes from companies who get access to the expertise of Fraunhofer scientists and engineers by contracting with them on specific research projects. Wow, that that sounds like a really interesting model. So now we're going to hear about a few of these projects, all of which you've actually seen in action. Is that right? Yeah, so the Fraunhofer Center in Glasgow recently had its 10th anniversary. and I went along to a showcase at the celebration, which is where I, where I encountered all three of the interviewees you'll hear next. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing about it. My first guest is David Stothard, who's the co-head of Lasers and Laser Systems at Fraunhofer. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. So you've been working on a device that can detect leaks of hydrogen gas. Now, most of our listeners will know that hydrogen is a colorless, odorless, and highly flammable gas. So it's simultaneously very hard to detect it and also very important. What sort of leak detection scenario did you have in mind as you were developing this detector? 
We first got involved in this technology about four years ago, and our segue into it was through the nuclear industry. Uh, here in the UK, um, we enjoy a long and illustrious history of nuclear technology, but with that has come a, a, a legacy of, of, of nuclear waste, basically, that we need to deal with for the next generation. And currently, um, up in Cumbria, uh, they're developing large storage warehouses, if you like, big concrete cathedral-type vaults into which boxes of intermediate nuclear waste will be stored for multiple decades before eventually finding their way down to the underground repository. And um, they're interested in monitoring the, the, con the, the condition of these packages as the decades pass. Now, hydrogen is, an, is a very pervasive issue across the nuclear industry because it's constantly being um, produced by uh, radiolysis and by corrosion. Uh, and normally it's an unwelcome visitor. You know, it's obviously an explosive hazard. And so it's sort of detected and, and vented for that reason. But in this application, we, we embrace hydrogen as a friend because the rate of production of hydrogen by these materials is very strongly dependent upon the condition or the sort of the evolution of what might be going on within those boxes. So if we can reach out in the surface above these stacks of boxes and, and measure the hydrogen concentration, we can, and, and also measure where that concentration is, we can say something about what's happening inside those boxes without having to send people in there to measure. These boxes are stacked very closely together and they pose a significant radiological hazard. So we don't really want people going up to them sort of thing. And so some mechanism of standoff detection, range resolved standoff detection is, is so important in this in this context. And so how did you and Fraunhofer sort of get involved in this particular project? Did someone from the nuclear industry sort of ring up and say, hey, we've got a problem with hydrogen? So if only, actually, I mean, ever since the centre started, uh, we identified the nuclear industry and, and Sellafield in particular, with whom we're working on this as, as potential partners, um, you know, the, a, a rich um, uh, opportunity for photonics to play a role. But but these organisations are typically quite, quite sort of like kind of medieval walled castles. They're very large organisations. It's not easy just to pick up the phone and say, let's work together. But that's all changed in the last four or five years. And I think that, that these folks have really kind of switched themselves on to the value of, of engaging with external technology delivery partners. And so they started their own sort of like mini funding scheme called the Game Changers Project, uh, where they basically send out challenges. They kind of come up with these collective challenges and then come up with you know, initially quite modest proof of concept type um, funding, which is perfectly adequate just to show the viability of a technique. Um, and then if, if that does indeed show some promise, then then more funding is available to develop that into deployable technology. And it's been an incredibly um, successful um, program as far as we're concerned, because not only does it offer, obviously the support is very welcome, but it allows us to engage with the problem holders. And it's it really opens one's eyes to the to the sort of issues and the and the detail of, of what one needs to do to to make practical deployable hardware. So we've covered now sort of why you want to detect hydrogen and what sort of environment you're working in. How does your device actually do that in practice? 
Well, hydrogen, <clears throat> optics, I should say, you know, optics or photonics is, is a fantastic way of detecting things. We can send light out over great ranges, over great distance, and, and there it interacts very intimately with, in a wide range of physical processes with different molecules. And the light that is backscattered can be collected, and these sort of precious spectral signatures can be analysed to, <clears throat> to find the... Um, to give telltale signs of what might be there. Hydrogen is a is a quite an uncooperative molecule <clears throat> in as much as it doesn't really exhibit any absorption features. It's very difficult to get light to, to interact with the light. But what it does do is um, have quite a significant Raman scatter. And Raman is this marvelous um, process that nature has gifted us where, if you like, it's a bit like flicking a wine glass and listening to the tone of the ring that comes back and you can tell which, which wine glass it is that you flicked, if you like. And it's a bit like that. You know, we sort of send up an intense pulse of light out and we time its round trip. It makes its way throughout the vault. And if it interacts with hydrogen, it scatters back light at a slightly different color. And we can we can collect back that, that, that light. Um, and so the time arrival of the, that, that light tells us what the, the distance from us is. The color of that light tells us what molecule we've interacted with. And the brightness, if you like, um, tells us how concentrated that, that, that gas is. The problem is the Achilles heel of Raman is that it's an incredibly weak process. <clears throat> if we just sent out a single photon of excitation light, the chances of us stimulating a, a Raman scattering event are about a thousand times worse than winning the lottery this week. And so what we have to do is, as it were, buy a few hundred million tickets by sending out a very bright pulse of light and then having incredibly um, sensitive detectors right down to the single photon level um, <clears throat> to detect these very low levels of light that comes back. Yeah, I think you may have, may have um, sort of preempted my next question, which was was going to be, you know, what was the most difficult aspect of the, this problem to solve, technologically speaking? I mean, you, you know, you're you're right to to, to identify this. It's what, what we need to do is is detect very low levels of light with exquisite timing precision, and that's as it were, the top of the challenge tree sort of thing. But fortunately, you benefit from the, um, well, both the, the sort of global in general and, and in the UK in particular, uh, investment in quantum technologies, because we are using quantum single photon um, avalanche detectors to, to, to make these detections, coupled with uh, state-of-the-art um, time-correlated single photon detection. So that's, if you like, a very fancy stopwatch um, that, that, that whose tick is down at the peak of second level. Um, and, uh, and and it's really a fusion of that with state-of-the-art laser, laser technology to make very compact, um, high-efficiency pulse lasers, and, and then just bringing it together into a high TRL sort of embodiment, um, which is one of the things we do so well here at Fraunhofer. That's technological readiness level. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, um, have you taken this device out into the field and tried it out at Sellafield somewhere? Where would you say its technological readiness level is now? Yes. Yeah, so, so we have deployed um, some instrumentation down in Sellafield in, in in a very sort of um, exciting area. Actually, uh, wonderful to see things that we have made 
being used to, to 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 help contribute to the solution of national problems. You know, it's it's very 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 satisfying. They 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 work autonomously now, and they are engineered into a single enclosed um, uh, device, if you like. But we focus mostly on the hardware as opposed to the user interface, and so it still requires uh, one of our staff really to, to to drive the instrument and to interpret the results that come back. The next phase of of development in the nuclear industry will be to uh, miniaturize our technology still further to improve that user interface so that it can be used by Sellafield personnel and also to to make sure that it's radiologically sound. We haven't really sort of put the system through its paces in the presence of a uh, a radiological emitter at the moment and so we need to show obviously that the the system will endure in in the environment that it's destined for. And um, what in terms of are the next steps in terms of broadening applications for this device beyond the nuclear industry? Because, you know, hydrogen, well, hydrogen is, is, is literally everywhere, but there's a lot of different places where a hydrogen leak might be problematic other than the nuclear industry. Yeah, that's a, it's a very insightful question. Actually, when we started down this road four or five years ago, it was the, the, the detection of hydrogen was something of, a, of an esoteric um, uh, activity, and not that many people were interested. Things have changed completely now, and, and of course we pivot as a as a society away from hydrocarbons to, to, to renewable and green sources of energy, and so we really feel there's a significant role for this in the um, rollout of the of the of the hydrogen energy network. Basically, it's it's fair to say that. Um, that that network will never exist unless the safety case can be proven. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that hydrogen burns. It's a clear, odorless gas that burns with a clear flame. So even if it's ignited, you can't tell and you won't know until you walk into it and feel feel the effect sort of thing. And so and so, it's very important to, to have uh, good quality um, detection diagnostics. And certainly they exist at the moment. Electrochemical sensors are, are very cost competitive and they're very... Um, uh, of very high performance down to parts per million sensitivity, but they must be in the cloud in order to work. And our unique selling point, if you like, our unique capability is that we can make these measurements over considerable standoff range. And so we have a, a new project now starting with, um, led by uh, by BP, and it has a consortium of UK SMEs um, uh, within it sort of thing. And that's really exciting that because we, we now can sort of start to really tailor all of the subsystems of the um, of the device uh, to be optimised for the task at hand, and that's what all the SME technology partners will provide. And we, we benefit enormously from the end user uh, insight that BP can bring to this as well. Uh, and so that that's really where, where where the next step for this technology. So coming soon to a hydrogen distribution facility near you. That's exactly what we're hoping for. Yes. David Stothard, thank you very much. Thank you. Our next interview switches from the challenge of detecting hydrogen at nuclear facilities to something that many of our listeners have experienced themselves, either directly or indirectly. Back to you, Margaret. My next guest is Anne-Marie Hawhey, a senior researcher at Fraunhofer. Hi, Anne-Marie. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So the device you've developed is designed to identify the types of bacteria that are present in a a, a clinical sample. Um, 
Perhaps you could begin by describing how this, this type of diagnostic test is done in the clinic now using standard technology. Yep. So what, what Fraunhofer have developed is essentially, essentially an antimicrobial susceptibility test. And antimicrobial susceptibility testing at the minute is currently done in a centralised lab. So if a patient goes to see their GP and they've got a suspected bacterial infection, a sample might be sent to a centralised lab somewhere. And what the people in the lab will typically do is they will they will try and grow a culture of that bacteria on a on a agar plate. Um, and on the plate there will be little discs of different types of antibiotics. And what they look to do is to see whether or not any of those antibiotics present on that disc end up with a, a clear area around that disc where there's no bacterial growth, because that indicates that that bacteria um, is susceptible to that particular antibiotic. So that's that's how it's currently done, and it takes around about three days turnaround from a sample being sent from a GP surgery to the result coming back to the to the GP surgery to inform the, the diagnosis. And what types of infections are these typically? Um, well, it, it could be anything. What we focused on in our project was urinary tract infections. So our project essentially came about through trying to answer a call, a funding call that was open, and they were specifically looking to develop diagnostics for GP surgeries. So point of, point of care diagnostics that could actually be situated in the GP surgery. And we started off by speaking to... We have some links into some GP surgeries in Glasgow. So we went along to speak to those GPs and said, like, what is your biggest problem? Um, what condition would it be most beneficial for you to have a point of care diagnostic instrument for? And their response was urinary tract infections or UTI is something, you know, they, they see multiple cases every day. And it's something where it's it's really difficult to know, firstly, whether or not the patient has a bacterial infection um, because if they don't, and there's obviously no point in giving that patient an antibiotic. And then secondly, which antibiotic to give? Because um, what they currently do at the minute, if a patient goes in with a suspected UTI, is because of this three-day delay in the diagnostics, they'll typically give that patient a broad-spectrum antibiotic, um, which is fine for the patient if that works. But if it doesn't work, or if they don't have a, a bacterial infection, then it's not going to help the patient's symptoms but it's also fueling the problem of antimicrobial resistance. So that was that was why we focused on, on UTIs with GP surgeries. So antimicrobial resistance, that's a really big problem because it's making it possible that uh, our antibiotics that we have might not work anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a massive problem. So there's estimates that by 2050, there's going to be something like 10 million deaths per year um, because of antimicrobial resistance. And things, routine operations that are very routine at the minute and low risk, things like um, hip replacements and C-sections, those will become high risk situations if we don't have antibiotics to treat, you know, everyday common bacterial infections. It's going to be, it's a, it's a huge problem. How does the device you developed work? What are some of the underlying principles it works on? So it's a it's an evanescent sensor, essentially, um, and what that means is the easiest sort of example to think about that people will be most familiar with would be something like a 
fibre optic or a light pipe. If you direct light through a piece of glass, for example, that's got a refractive index, um, and the surrounding what is surrounding that piece of glass has got a lower refractive refractive index, the light will be guided along that piece of glass. But some of the light actually extends beyond the boundary of the glass and interacts with whatever it is that's present round about that piece of glass, and that's known as the evanescent wave. Um, and this evanescent wave, if there's anything present on the surface of that glass, that evanescent wave will interact with whatever that might be that's present. And that has an impact on the properties of the light that would come out the other end of the light pipe or the fiber optic. So that's the that's the sort of the core of the sensing principle of the technology. So is the idea that it would the light would interact with a, a bacterium in some way on the on the inside of this the sample or inside the glass? Yeah, exactly. So we've developed a it's a, a disposable test that has various different channels in it, um, and the idea would be that you would you would put a, a urine sample, a very small volume of a urine sample into this disposable test and there would be four channels. You can you can choose the number of channels that you like, but we went with four. So one channel would contain no antibiotics. So if there's bacteria in that urine sample, the bacteria will grow over time. And then the other three channels will have different antibiotics in them. So if one of those antibiotics is effective, then any growth in bacteria should be stopped by the presence of that antibiotic. So we can look at the difference between the channel that contains no antibiotic and the ones that contain antibiotics and see is there a difference in the light output at the other end between these different channels. And so this would be, you say it's a disposable test. How how big are you you targeting eventually? Size-wise? Yeah. So it's, it's small. Um, it's very small. It's probably, you know, five centimetres by five centimetres long by a couple of centimetres wide. I mean, that can that can obviously be defined depending on however many number of channels that you want to put onto your test, how many antibiotics you want to test in one go. Um, so along with that, we've also developed a, a reader instrument that the GP or the nurse, whoever was performing the diagnostic test, would attach a, a small syringe to the test itself and then place that into the reader instrument. Because obviously we don't want whoever's performing the test to have to be doing technical things that is maybe appropriate in a lab, but isn't appropriate in a GP surgery. So it's been designed to be very simple to use. It just has to be put into the instrument, close the lid, and then alignment and things happen automatically within the, within the reader instrument, and that performs the test. And then the GP or the nurse gets the output from the, from the instrument. What would you say was the most difficult technical challenge that you had to overcome in developing this this testing system? There's difficulties in the automation of the positioning of the test within the instrument. Um, the way the test works, you have to align things very, very precisely within the instrument. So I'd say that was probably the biggest challenge. Okay. And what's the next steps for this? I mean, you've you got a, a working prototype that you showed off at the, the Fraunhofer celebration of 10 years. What's what's the next step for that? Yeah, so at the minute we've demonstrated proof of concept in the lab to show that we can detect 
um, bacterial growth and then the effect of the antibiotic on that growth. So essentially that the bacteria stopped growing within 20 minutes. When we started this project, we were aiming to have a test that could perform the entire test and provide a result within 30 minutes um, because that was a useful time frame for a GP surgery appointment. Um, so we've shown in the lab that we can do that in 20 minutes. And this is at clinically relevant levels of bacteria, so what would typically be used to diagnose a UTI. Um, we've also developed a reader, as I say. There is still some optimization of the reader required. Um, and we also have, we, ha we had a, a GP partner in place, and the idea was going to be that the, the instrument would sit in a GP practice and patients who go in with a suspected UTI, the, the GP would send off some of that sample to the lab. But generally, they don't, need, they don't need all of the sample that that patient provides. So we would test the residual sample with our instrument. And then when they get the results back from the centralised lab, we can compare the two to get an idea of the sensitivity and the specificity of our test. And then that information would go into a, a larger clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So essentially a small, very small scale, one GP office clinical trial. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually, we had a few GP surgeries lined up just so that we would get the volume of, of tests that we needed. I think um, each GP surgery would typically see possibly about 10, 10 potential UTIs a day. Um, so if we needed larger numbers, the GP that we were speaking to actually had, I think they had three different sites in Glasgow. So we could potentially have had urine samples from each of those three different sites just to make sure we had the right number of tests. So what are some of the remaining challenges before, you know, we might see this in, in, in our GP's surgeries if someone else goes in with, with a suspected UTI and, and, and goes to the surgery for that? So, I mean, like I said, we, there, there has to be some refinement of the automation of the alignment within the reader system. Um, and then the next thing would be commercialization of the technology. So Fraunhofer is a research institute um, and we're here to serve to serve industry, essentially. We do not commercialize technologies ourselves. So to progress this project, our next step really would be to find a commercialization partner who wanted to take this project on um, and take it through the regulatory approval process for a di uh, medical diagnostic. Well, if any of our listeners out there are, are interested in that, I'm sure that they'll, they'll, get, they'll be in touch. Anne-Marie Hahi, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. Staying on the medical theme, the last interview in this series is about a device that could be a boon for patients, pharmacists, and perhaps even drug manufacturers. Plus here now from Adam Pollock, who's a researcher at Fraunhofer. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Margaret. So I understand you've been working on a device that uses laser light to identify the contents of pills. Um, I can think of a lot of reasons why that could be useful, but maybe you could just give us a bit more context about the specific problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, so uh, the, the whole idea came from recognizing the, the problem that, that there is need for patient individual drug dispensing. And uh, there, is, uh, there is 
obviously thousands of different uh, prescription drugs uh, uh, that, that are given to patients, uh, but uh, there are literally hundreds that look exactly the same. And the whole task is uh, in the hand of a, of, a, of a pharmacy that, that actually takes the, 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 the tablets and dispenses them into a specific groups that is targeted for, uh, for a given patient. And uh, there is no uh, chemical check. Everything is based on a visual inspection uh, and, and, and basically on the discretion of, of, of that individual who is, uh, who is getting those patients' uh, pills uh, distributed for, for their daily dose. Um, and unfortunately, there are uh, mistakes being made um, and, and that technology uh, is, is, is basically addressing that problem, trying to, uh, to, to add uh, this um, lack of ambiguity that person, that human factor can bring to the story. Yeah, so I'm envisioning here a situation where someone being treated for maybe a complex illness, but they have multiple medications, and they all just look like tiny white pills. Is that is that an accurate picture? Yes, you can you can imagine that obviously a person can 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 require several different pills, and some may have different colors, some may have different shape, but there are plenty that looks exactly the same visually, and the difference is in their in their chemical composition. So, so that's where that technology comes in, where visually we cannot distinguish them, but by looking at the chemical composition, they are, uh, they are obviously different. And how, how serious is this problem? I mean, how often do you know, pharmacists have one of these human error moments and, and make mistakes with these, these doling out these pills? So, so there is a high percentage uh, of those happening. There are various statements that I that I've heard heard up to one per ten uh, may happen. There are uh, obviously it is very much human factor uh, oriented, and uh, there are there is a big variety in this, but the percentage can be high. Okay, so how did you get involved? I mean, you're, you're a laser scientist. How did you get involved in trying to solve this, this problem in, in pharmaceuticals? So this specific technology was actually a part of a collaborative project between two Fraunhofer's, ourselves in, in the UK, and, and a, a Fraunhofer Center, Fraunhofer IAF Center in, in Germany. Uh, and there, there was a closer link uh, between the, the Fraunhofer Center in, in Germany and, and the, the, the pharmacy at the, at the medical university where, where that specific project problem was highlighted to us. And uh, the whole concept came from joint capabilities between the two centers that center in Germany developed a very, very specific laser that is addressing uh, infrared region of, of electromagnetic spectrum where a lot of chemicals have very pronounced features that, that allows us to identify them, but also with a very high speed of data acquisition. You can imagine that that laser is capable of acquiring a broad spectral range in the infrared with a frequency of approximately 1,000 spectra a second. That opens a door for very rapid inspection of, uh, of substances under the field of view. 
what we brought to that story is that recognizing that we are looking at a very, very specific problem, uh, we know what we are looking for. So instead of taking that spectroscopy of everything that may be within the, um, in front of the laser and, and, and trying to look for the pills, we are mar merging that spectroscopy problem with a machine vision. So there is a, uh, a, a camera with a, with a clever piece of algorithm that basically looks within the field of view of the camera. And as soon as it detects that there is a pills in, within the, uh, the field of view, it vectors that infrared laser onto those pills. So we are detecting the position of those pills purely from the visible information from the camera by calibration the image towards the physical geometries and positions under the, the, the guiding um, uh, system of the laser, we can then accurately position the point where, uh, where the infrared laser is, is, is pointing at to individual pills and very rapidly sweep across all the pills that would be in, in a field of view. So adding more visualization to that story, you can imagine that there is a conveyor belt under that system where we have a, a blister of, of, of pills and you can imagine 10, 15 different pills. Uh, and within a, a, a fraction of a second, we identify where the, the police blister is, that conveyor belt stops and, and we, can, uh, we can quickly raster the, the infrared laser only onto those pills, not being interested with the conveyor belt, with the blister itself, with anything that is around. And that allows that instantaneous uh, measurement combined with that very high speed of, of spectral acquisition. Within a couple seconds, we can have a whole blister scanned and analyzed with the, with the additional signal processing, uh, identifying what are those seemingly identical pills in the blister by their uh, chemical footprint. That's interesting because it, you've made it very clear in that answer that there's actually two problems to be solved. One is the spectroscopy problem, sort of, you know, laser spectroscopy with the quantum cascade laser to tell you what's in these pills. And the other is to tell the laser what to look at. So these are, there's a sort of a scientific problem and also an engineering problem all sort of bound up together. Yes, that's, uh, this is, our center in Glasgow is a center for applied photonics, and there is very frequently uh, a, a very close link between finding the proper engineering solution for a clever bit of science that comes within it to address a specific application. So this is very much an, an, an engineering solution that merges different pieces of technology. There is a signal processing, machine vision, and uh, infrared spectroscopy put together into, into a single device that targets one specific problem. So yes, there is a, a marriage of, of skills and technologies put into, into a single solution. And what are the next steps for the device you've, you've built? I mean, at, at the Fraunhofer um, 10th anniversary celebration a few weeks ago, you were showing off a prototype. What's next for that device? Are we going to see it in, in pharmacies anytime soon? 
So that is our next goal. And uh, as, as, you, uh, as you may remember, I mentioned that was the, the result of the project between two Fraunhofer centers. We are now actively discussing with, uh, with ph- pharmaceutical companies of getting attraction and, and, and building up an interest for, for this technology to be implemented in, in, in the real world. The project that we've done, the demonstrator that was shown uh, is, is us internally making the first step to, to demonstrate the feasibility. But the next steps in terms of science and, and engineering is speed. We can always make it faster add many more signal processing and, 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 and aspects to this, that, that it's not only looking at the pills that are exactly a- identical, but we could, we could add more to the machine vision that, that it actually pre-classifies everything on the shape and the size and the color. We don't need a QCL for this. That, that would happen without even scanning in infrared because, because we, could, we could have a, several layers of classification. For this to really unburden the, the, the pharmacies from, uh, from, from that work, you could imagine that there are automatic feeders with that, with kind, that kind of thing. And the even longer goal is, is with acceleration of, of that process, you could imagine that going one step uh, earlier in the process, not in the pharmacies, but to the to the manufacturer of the pharmaceuticals, where similar technology could be above the production line, I- increasing the quality control of the process and looking potentially on the on the composition and 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 the amount of active substance in a specific product, where you, you can imagine if if there is a 500 milligram of active substance or 200 milligram of substance substance, well. If you are selling this as a 500 milligram, then you want to be sure that that's what is there. And with thousands and thousands of, of those getting out from the production line, it, you cannot always do the quality control for everything. There is there is a lot of statistics in it, and and bringing this kind of technology for inline measurement could could increase that the confidence level of of the product's quality. Interesting. Well, thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Anne-Marie Hawhey, David Stothard, Adam Pollack, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at the legacy of the renowned Indian film director and polymath Satyajit Ray. Host Andrew Glester speaks to Ray's biographer Andrew Robinson and the biophysicist Momita Dasgupta about how science influenced Ray's work and how the director has inspired both scientists and filmmakers. You can find all episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.